1060 KDUS Tempe Phoenix and KSLX HD2 Scottsdale Phoenix. It's time to hit the field with Extra Point featuring Kayla Mortolaro and Bob Kemp on KDUS AM 1060. Tweet the show at KDUS AM 1060 or give us a call at 602-260-1060. The snap is back. The hold is down. You can't miss with this combination. And the extra point is good. Hour number two of Extra Point right here on KDUS AM 1060. Bob Kemp, Caleb Mortolaro here with you up until 1 o'clock today, as we typically do Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. It is Monday, though. It's February 26th. If you'd like to chime in, we'll take your calls today around 1215-602-260-1060. Before we get into college hoops, we also have to wrap up this 33rd offensive coordinator, best offensive coordinators heading into the 2024 offseason in the NFL. So we'll do that here momentarily. But first, let's reset the scene with today's poll questions, and we'll get things started with the KDOS1060.com poll question, which involves the Phoenix Suns. The Suns did pick up a win over the Lakers yesterday afternoon. So here's the question. Which star-dominated team is more likely to make a playoff run, the Suns or the Lakers? And this is now flipped, and the Suns, are out in front to the tune of 57% of the vote. The Lakers are trailing at 43%. We will officially answer this question around 1230 today. Tossing it on over to X at KDUS AM 1060. It's a three-year, $80 million deal for Cody Bellinger and the Cubs. There are opt-outs after every year of the deal. Should the Cubs be favored to win the NL Central after re-signing Valley product Cody Bellinger? The masses are on the yes side of things. 75% of the vote, no trailing at 25%. Another question that officially gets answered today around 1230. As I mentioned, if you'd like to chime in, 602-260-1060. We'll take your calls today around 1215. Recapping here, the 33rd, putting together the ranking of every NFL offensive play caller entering the 2024 offseason. Number one was Kyle Shanahan. Number two, Sean McVay. Three, Andy Reid. Four, Mike McDaniel, five, Matt LaFleur, six, Sean Payton, and seven, Kevin O'Connell with the Vikings is where we left off. If you want uh, kind of what we think about these offensive play callers and how things went, you can always podcast our number one, KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS1060 app. But let's roll on. Number eight on the list is Shane Steichen with the Colts. Uh, certainly very good with the inside run game, RPOs, how he was able to adjust from Anthony Richardson to Gardner Minshew and make that offense viable. But I also think that maybe there's a bit here, too, of uh, the the loss that the Eagles felt when Shane Steichen became the head coach and offensive player caller for the Colts. The Eagles offense just wasn't the same last year. That's true. Even though, unfortunately, when I think of Shane Steichen calling plays for the Colts, uh, I don't know if I saw a coordinator do a worse job, uh, worse job in the final drive of a game than him against the Texans when their season was on the line this year. That was the worst called possession I maybe ever seen, let alone when your season's on the line in the final game of the season. 
Yeah, not having your star player in the game is usually um, not the best. And then when you have a play, the, the whole the, the whole seven minutes was a disaster. I mean, you know, they basically they they could have you know they gone fast. They might have been able to get the ball back. They didn't even do that. And at the time, I don't remember who was commentating on that game, but you know it was an accurate assessment. What are they doing? You know, not going hurry up now. You can get the ball back twice. You get two for one, like an NBA thing. Just completely screwed it up from the first play to the last play of that entire drive with your season on the line. Uh, number nine on this list is Kevin Stefanski, and maybe he should be up a little bit higher based upon what he was able to accomplish this last season. He had four different quarterbacks, uh, managed the offense to suit yeah. each one of those quarterbacks' strengths because they, too, were also wildly different in their abilities and what their strengths were and their experience level. Uh, plus, typically, a Kevin Stefanski team has uh, a pretty good run game well their offensive line I think was ravaged with injuries too I remember at one point of the season that you know that you know, obviously they were missing both of their tackles for almost the entire season and at one point they were without everybody but their starting center uh, for more than a week or two and you know obviously Nick Chubb got injured in the second game of the season early in the season and was out for the rest of the year yeah, what they had to do and injury-wise and uh, to adjust, is it's amazing that they were actually as good as they were, and he was really good at that. Uh, yeah, I know some people thought it was a big deal when they changed coordinators. Well, sorry. I mean, he's he's it's his offense. He's calling the plays. I don't care who the coordinator is. Uh, number 10 on this list, and maybe I'm a little surprised he's – 10th on this list is Ben Johnson with the Lions. Uh, obviously, their offensive line certainly helps because of just how solid they are as a unit, but he's certainly not afraid to mix up the run game using Gibbs in Montgomery. Uh, he's not afraid to 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 really put them in great positions to succeed and kind of ride the hot momentum there. And then I think it's, it's hard to argue with the growth of Jared Goff and that he's getting his best years in Detroit. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think actually the most uh, the thing that stood out to me about the uh, Detroit offense this year during the regular season, uh, really most of the regular season, and I think that they they did a tremendous job monitoring and limiting the uh, touches for Gibbs during the season because there's no way this dude's going to make it through an entire regular season. I should never say maybe I shouldn't say that one year into his career. But he was injured in college at Georgia Tech. He was injured in college, some at Alabama. And you know, they did a tremendous job in Detroit not basically running him into the ground because you watch him play. Remember the, what, the first game of the season on Thursday night, everybody you know, went, lost their mind because why isn't he getting more carries? Well, it's because he's not going to make it through an entire season, most likely, if you give him a whole bunch of carries. And they saved his you know, majority of his you know, bulk time towards the end of the season when they needed to win some games at the end of the regular season and in the playoffs. They did a tremendous job of you know, monitor, monitoring his uh, you know, plays, uh, you know, snaps would be the right term, Bob, uh, snaps, and uh, they, they got to continue to do that. But to me, that was the most impressive thing they did this year. 
Uh, so that was one through ten. So where does Arizona Cardinals offensive coordinator Drew Petzing land? He actually comes in at number 12 here. Uh, for the most part, the offense was able to move the ball with Dobbs or Murray at quarterback here. And obviously the run game was incredibly impressive. You also had Trey McBride having a breakout season. Um, you know, sometimes I think you really could tell what the offensive game plan was and it all made sense. And then there was a couple of other times where it was like a little bit head scratching, but for the most part, they seemed to try to maximize what they could and had a pretty good plan in place. For the most part, even though I think he was uh, kind of hamstrung by the score. Uh, you have pretty much every game uh, this season, is if the, if the Cardinals, no matter who the quarterback was at that time, if they were chasing points, they were screwed because they couldn't pass block. If they were able to just run block and control the, 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 you know, the tempo and the situation and they weren't trying to chase points, they were really good. Uh, but uh, then they pretty much – they had very few offensive line injuries compared to the rest of the league in the collective season itself. So that wasn't uh, – and you know, Paris Johnson, I think, is the kind of the, uh, the poster player for this. Awful in pass blocking, tremendous in run blocking, so much so that I'm going to be preaching this from now to the draft and it's never going to happen because they just drafted it, you know, top whatever he was in the top, top six or seven in the draft on an offensive lineman that's a tackle. I questioned whether he was a tackle even in Ohio State, and he really wasn't nearly as good a tackle as he is a guard. I think he'd be better served as a guard in the NFL, and they should draft at least one tackle in the upcoming draft, which has a tremendous amount of offensive linemen in uh, depth-wise, not just towards the top of the draft, uh, but you know, basically, if the Cardinals were behind, they were screwed because they couldn't pass block. If they could just, you know, basically run down, run it down the opponent's throats, they were really good at that. And James Conner, obviously, when healthy, was a sp- exceptional. Uh, but you know, they, 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 I think that Petsing did everything he could with what he had. But you know, their pass blocking was so bad that I think it limited what they could actually do in games that they were behind, especially in the second half of those games when a you know, small lead or small deficit usually became a big deficit by the end of the game. Uh, yeah, I, I think that certainly offensive line will be addressed in the offseason, and it's uh, on the list of many uh, positions that need to be upgraded. Well, but I think their offensive line's way behind everything on the defense. I mean, other than, you know, Buda Baker and Clark at linebacker, assuming he comes back healthy, uh, other than Baker, Clark, and Thompson, everybody on the defense can be replaced. Everybody. Nobody else was really any good for an entire long period of time. None of them. And now I hear Buda Baker may be on the trade block. That's another thing I heard about over the weekend and read about, which makes perfect sense. His contract's up at the end of the next year. At the end of this year, I guess, technically, next season, the 2024 season, his contract is up after that. He obviously, he wasn't thrilled about his contract situation before last season. And, uh, you know, if they're going to, if they're not going to sign him in a long term contract, they should trade him and they could get something for him uh, before the draft for sure. So I assume that if I'm reading about this over the weekend, that this is going to be a popular, maybe not popular, but a constant theme here between now and draft night uh i'm assuming you meant kaiser white 
for linebacker? That's correct. Yeah, okay. Correct. Yeah. He oh, was very what good. What did I say? Clark? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, my bad. Yeah, White. Yeah, he was very good till he unfortunately got hurt, and their defense went to hell after – their defense wasn't very good to begin with. It really went to hell after he got hurt. Uh, yes, he was very, very solid, and obviously his connection there with Jonathan Gannon coming over from the Eagles uh, seemed to understand the defense and understand what uh, is expected of him from his linebacking role. So if he can come back, you at least have that middle, uh, and then you can build around it. But we'll see what ends up happening. Plenty of moves ahead for yeah. for the Cardinals for certain. Uh, one other, yeah, th- uh, let me let me say one other quick thing here. Just because, you know, hopefully most, you know, there are a lot of, most guys seem to come back after injury and are really good, but, you know, there's lots of guys, unfortunately, or maybe, you know, not as many, but there are several players that come back and, you know, they're playing, but their level of effectiveness, they definitely take a step or two back uh, once they come back from injury. And he did not have a good, you know, that was a bad injury that he suffered. So hopefully he comes back at full strength. If not, that's another position that you might have to address. The NFL scouting combine is this week. Players are arriving. Workouts begin Thursday with defensive line and linebacker. Friday is DBs and tight ends. Saturday is the running backs, quarterbacks, and wide receivers. And Sunday is the offensive linemen. Jaden Daniels and Caleb Williams have already said that they will not throw at the combine. Instead, they will be preparing to throw at their pro days. On the other side of the break, let's dive into college hoops, U of A basketball, ASU basketball, an overtime contest between Houston and Baylor. We'll do it all on the other side of the break. It is the extra point right here on KDOS AM 1060, online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app. AM 1060 into your home with Alexa. Hi, I'm Alexa. Download the KDUS AM 1060 skill and enable. Then say, Alexa, open the KDUS AM 1060. This is where I start my day. KDOS AM 1060. As always, follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro here with you up until 1 o'clock today, as we typically do Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Let's roll into college hoops from over the weekend, and we'll start with U of A. Men's basketball, they took care of business against UW, 91-75. to 75. Caleb Love, 9 of 19, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, 28 points for him. Pella Larson had a big game, 7 of 11, 17 points. And the Wildcats are now back on top in the Pac-12 standings, and we'll get to that here momentarily. But do you like the bounce back there for U of A? Nah, this game meant nothing. Washington's terrible. Uh, the U of A just jumped on them, and Washington's—they're not good to start with. Uh, this game was—they were up by 23. The U of A, the lead was cut to nine at one point, and then they ended up winning by 16. And depending on which sports book you deal with, you either got screwed the point spread at the end or covered the point spread in the end. Uh, but th- this game was just a—you know—as expected, a kind of a complete waste of time. 
And apparently a lot of people in Tucson thought that because if you were watching this game, there were a whole lot of empty seats in the lower bowl at McHale. More than you usually see. I don't know if it was the, the noon start, uh, the late night game on Thursday night against Washington State that did not get over until 11-22. Uh, quick turnaround, etc. The team didn't have a problem with the quick turnaround. It seemed like the fan base certainly did. And I don't think that they're uh, rebelling because they lost the game on Thursday night. I'm guessing that they just didn't want to drag their ass out of bed and get to a what was going to be a bad college basketball game at noon on Saturday. Is there something in your mind that uh, McHale is not the same force that the center used to be? Uh, or is that just kind of fictional at this point? No, it's definitely – well, it hasn't been since the 80s, quite frankly. Um, you know, the late 80s, the, the, team, the time that I was rocking the most it ever rocked was uh, with the Steve Kerr-Sean Elliott team that got to the Final Four in 1988. Uh, it hasn't come close to that, in my opinion, since. And I've been to many games in McHale. Uh, you know, I was actually at the very first game in McHale with my parents in like 1972, I think it was, 72, 73, somewhere in there. Uh, but you know, that's, uh, you know, the home crowd advantage is still a big deal in the Pac-12 because there are very few home crowd advantages in the conference, quite frankly. Even when they're good teams, there's very few home crowd advantages. They made a big deal about UCLA showing up on Saturday night for the USC game, which USC won, by the way. Uh, but you know that they've had great teams, and that's not been a real you – know, Poly Pavilion has not been a huge home court advantage except when they've had really good players, <laughs> which has been several years in the last 25. But uh, uh, it's uh, – the, 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 the McHale home crowd thing – it isn't even close to what it was in the 80s and maybe sometime, some parts of the 90s, early 90s. Uh, so the reason the Wildcats are now back on top in the Pac-12 because WSU came to Tempe and faced ASU. ASU men's basketball beat the Cougars 73-61, to snapping an eight-game winning streak for the Cougs. Jose Perez, 16 points. Frankie Collins, 14 points. WSU, though, shot three of 18 from three. Meanwhile, ASU was six of 14 from behind the arc. Yeah, this was clearly took about less than 10 minutes of this game to you. I assume most people realize that uh, Washington State has a uh, you know mental hangover they don't know how to deal with success because they haven't had to. Uh, this game was much more the Washington State not showing up than really anything that ASU did differently, kind of differently. I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but, you know, ASU, uh, actually Washington State scored the first four points. Then the next thing you knew, ASU had a 13-4 to lead. It was 36-29 to at halftime. Uh, Washington State started the second half with nine straight, but after that, uh, they fell behind again. ASU led 57-55, and then Washington State got blitzed at the end of the game, 16-6. to uh, The one thing that was uh, uh, something we almost never seen this year, ASU, one of the worst shooting teams in college basketball, made 49% of its field goal attempts. I think the key thing is they only threw up 14 threes. They made six of them. They usually throw up like 20-some, and they're a horrible three-point shooting team. They're also usually a really bad foul shooting team, and they made 9 out of 11 from the free throw line. Uh, in ASU, usually a really bad rebounding team, also one of the worst in the country, uh, won the rebounding battle in this game, 35-33. Uh, they've also uh, 
you know, they, they've actually had their, you know, they've won six of the last eight games against Washington State. But to me, it was more Washington State just not showing up and not knowing how to deal with success than it was really uh, ASU playing well. Uh, then we also have moving out of the Pac-12, but into a game in the Big 12 between Houston and Baylor. This contest went into overtime with Houston coming out on top, 82-76. to Jamal Shedd, he had the game winner until he didn't. The ball was still in his hands when the buzzer went off. Uh, Baylor, though, interestingly enough, actually out-rebounded Houston 37-29. to Baylor shot better from three at a 40% completion clip compared to Houston 28.6 but Houston had 14 steals to Baylor's four and eight turnovers for Houston compared to Baylor's 19. Yeah I don't think other than the rebounding thing which was very surprising other than that I don't think anything was terribly surprising this game you have Houston a really good defensive team against Baylor a really good offensive team that can't guard anybody Uh, and that was the case in this game I'm hoping that Baylor can't guard anybody tonight because they have an extremely quick turnaround and play at TCU tonight. And I'm on TCU in that game tonight. Uh, and, uh, you know, Fort Worth. or They've played like at three different locations this year, so I'm not exactly sure where TCU is playing that game. It's a TCU home game in one of their three venues. So whatever. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, Baylor's got to go on the road after that tough game on Saturday. And they blew that game because it, you know, basically they win the game if the kid makes the free throw. And that was an over – that was in regulation. Unfortunately, though, I believe there was one basket scored between these two teams, one field goal scored between the two teams in the five-minute overtime. Yeah, uh, obviously Baylor there had a chance to to win it in regulation. Uh, but, you know, these two teams and just the conference in general kind of uh, beating each other up. Uh, it, it, did it did the contest yeah. itself live up to the hype of of these two facing each other? Um, yeah, just because it kind of if you watch college basketball and it seemed like uh, some of the announcers doing the game were stunned. Uh, but, you know, Baylor is one of the most uh, you know, dynamic offensive teams in college basketball, but they can't guard Kayla, me, and anybody else that we get in, can get to play with us. They're a terrible defensive team. And, you know, it's not surprising. They're a really good three-point shooting team. The fact that you know, they outshot Houston, Houston's biggest weakness is three-point shooting. So that wasn't surprising that there was that big of differential there. But, uh you know, I don't know why anybody was terribly surprised at the way that this kind of, this game went to some extent that you got one really good offensive team that doesn't guard anybody and one team that has some questions on offense that it's the best defensive team in college basketball. And Houston, by the way, as I just noticed, number one in the polls this week. Uh, ooh, that's a shakeup, but not so unsurprising here. Uh, Tennessee, 86, Texas A&M, 51. I bring this up here because haven't really spent a whole lot of time talking about Tennessee, but what do you think about the Volunteers? Do you think they're a complete team? Do they have what it takes to win it all? I think they do. I mean, I wish I didn't have the Rick Barnes history in the NCAA tournament, but he's never had an offensive player. I shouldn't say that because he had, you know, he had Kevin Durant. He's never had an offensive player at Tennessee. Uh, as good as Dalton Connect. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's a really good player on offense. They still play good defense. I trust this Tennessee team more than I have the last two or three years. 
which I've pretty much gone against them as soon as I could in the tournament. And a couple times that's worked out. A couple times it hasn't worked out. Uh, but they're good. I think the real story here in this, you know, with these two teams, there were a whole lot of people that took Texas A&M to win the conference. To win the, uh, you know, they had all those guys back from last year and they made a you know, late run at the end of the regular season a year ago. And I believe they have either four or five starters back on that team. And they're not even going to make the NCAA tournament unless they, unless they win the SEC tournament and get the automatic bid. They have been the most disappointing team in college basketball. And they had no chance in this, uh, in, in this game on Saturday. None. Zero. Uh, Wake Forest now, they pull off the upset over Duke, 83-79. to We'll first start with the part about Wake Forest winning this game as they're trying to uh, claw their way into the NCAA tournament and to get an NCAA tournament spot. Let's first talk about the actual game uh, with Wake Forest beating Duke. This might have been the best college basketball game I've actually watched this season. Unfortunately, because we're going to talk about next is why nobody cares about that anymore. But this was a tremendous offensive explosion for both teams, which we expected. Uh, We thought that, you know, Wake Forest, I've said it many times, they have five guys. They may have the best starting five on offense of any team in college basketball. They have zero bench. They're not particularly good on defense. They've not lost a home game this year. Uh, so they've, 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 and they've lost, they got a lot of, they, they played a billion of quad one teams and this notion they're on the bobble. I don't quite understand it because they haven't lost. They have no bad losses. Uh, they're good. And I hope they get in the tournament because I want to pick them against, uh, they're going to, if they get in the tournament, they're going to be like a eight, nine, 10 seed. Um, and I think they're going to win a couple of games and, uh, hopefully they get in. And um, I'm, I'm kind of astonished that they're on the bubble, uh, supposedly, from the experts. But uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, but, you know, this, this was a very fun game to watch. I was watching it with a couple of friends of mine at a local sports book here in town. And uh, I was just, met, you know, the U of A game was going on simultaneously. And I paid no attention to that game because that game was a waste of time from the start. But this, this Wake Forest-Duke game was a great game, and I'm not joking. This was like the most entertaining, maybe I, I think I said the word best. Maybe I kind of maybe got a little out of hand there. It was the most entertaining game I've watched in college basketball this season, and I watch a million games every day. Okay, now for the, the bad part about everything here. With the win, Wake Forest in massive celebration, and the fans are storming the court. Kyle Filipowski ends up injuring his knee. Um, this is also not the first time that we've seen this happen just this year. Uh, Iowa State and the storming of – Iowa, excuse me, and the storming of the court in Caitlin Clark getting hit earlier on in the season. This also isn't the first time that this has happened in general in college hoops. Will we see changes coming to court storming but also can changes really uh, be in place? You know, they used to actually have a cage around basketball courts when it first started. It was, that's why they're called cagers, one of, their, you know, one of the old-time you know, nicknames of basketball. Maybe they should just do that. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to change as long as there's idiots, idiot human beings in the world. Uh, this is not going to change. If people are idiots, and they just, uh, you know, it, this is the latest example. Also, I think that Wake Forest, 
did a horrendous job here. They, the, the stupid AD, sorry, I don't even know who it is. I mean, he may be the most the smartest person in the history of the world, but he said some of the dumbest things after the game trying to defend their uh, security. There was no security. ESPN basically tried to, you know, like a couple hours later in their you know, halftime show, tried to point out any security people that were anywhere near the floor, and uh, there weren't any. Uh, there were a couple of guys that you know, had, like, yellow jackets on. They had no chance, obviously. I mean, this is a joke. Uh, I have no idea how you can stop it. As long as there's idiots in the world, it's going to continue, apparently. Well, you know, yes, you know, if you are prepared for a moment like this to be able to have enough security to be in place, but I'm also just kind of wondering if you see a mob of fans coming at you that security, regardless of how many people are really there, are probably going to be ducking for cover because this stampede is coming. So the whole philosophy in itself is really hard to, I guess, corral, if you will, unless you're talking about with cages or, or something to try to, to stop uh, people being able to walk out onto the court. I think the only thing would stop people at this point, college students or non-college students, because not every, apparently one of these guys that got involved in this thing on Saturday is, was not anywhere near a college student. It was an adult, uh, you know, because college students apparently, in my opinion, aren't adults at that point. Uh, in nor should they be considered adults, uh, but you know, it was—they uh, had no chance. And uh, I, like I said, I've been talking about. The, 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 there was a play. There was like maybe ten years ago. Uh, there was a South Carolina game where somebody ended up in the hospital for months after he got trampled on in one of these court storming things, and it's never changed. Um, the SEC. You know, they actually fine teams for doing such a thing, but they don't care about that. Uh, in fact, I saw a thing on uh, um, uh, Fox, excuse me, on Saturday night on Fox, uh, talking about how they actually uh, have uh, marketed storm uh, court stormings, even though they fine these teams like fifty, dollars $100,000, the teams don't care. They actually use it as a positive and market it on their social media. Yeah, ah, man. but you know what's also interesting is I think we've kind of come into this weird, weird age where court stormings are happening more and more frequently, but I don't know that the game itself is like of a magnitude that should be court storming. Like, was well, this I'm, game over Duke? I know it's Duke and I know it's a rival, no. but should we have been that excited to be court storming? There should they if I'm a Wake Forest fan, I'm really excited because I got Lunardi and every other all these other guys saying they're not in the tournament all week long. They've been saying that. You got Steve Frome, uh, you know, their their coach saying he he went out and you know he ripped the you know and I don't blame him. Uh, he ripped the bracketology people for saying they're not in the tournament. Uh, they I believe they beaten Duke once since Tim Duncan was there. And that was a long time ago when Tim Duncan was there. Uh, so I completely understand the enthusiasm for Wake Forest winning the game. And I just never, ever understand, even when I was young and stupid and drunk, uh, I would have never, ever considered, let's storm the court. It's just a stupid thing to do. And as I mentioned multiple times, I apologize but as long as we have stupid humans on earth, we're going to have stupid humans doing things like this.
Well, hopefully the injury isn't anything serious there for Kyle Filiposki. I haven't heard any updates this morning uh, on his status. Moving on to Kentucky and Alabama. Kentucky 117, Alabama 95. I had to do a double take here because that is a college basketball score, 117 to 95. Kentucky shot 63.1% from the floor, 54.2% from three. Alabama, they were pretty good from the floor too at 56.7% from the floor. Yeah, if it had not been for the Wake Forest uh, postgame situation, this would have been the headline of college basketball on Saturday. Yeah, Alabama actually it was in first place in the SEC before this game. I believe they're tied with – I can't, can't – we talked about the NBA, how you can't keep track. I can't keep track of the SEC. That changes every day too because uh, they've got like five or six really good teams and they're all kind of bunched up. Uh, but uh, Alabama was in first place. They were at least the number one seed in the tournament before that game. They caught the SEC tournament before that game. Uh, they're not a great defensive team, but this was just atrocious. Uh, you know, basically Kentucky had they had 58 at halftime. They could have scored 140 in this game if they really wanted to do it, but they took a bunch of dudes out in the last few minutes of the game. But uh, this was an impressive performance. But as we talked about in the first hour when we covered Kentucky, who knows what you're going to get. In the last 10 days, they won it undefeated. Auburn was undefeated at home and had won every game by 10 points. And they go to, uh, they go to Auburn, and Kentucky wins that game uh, you know, comfortably. Uh, and, that, uh, and then th- four days later, they lose at LSU. And then they do this literally another four days after that, and they win at home and just destroy Alabama in the most impressive offensive performance of anybody in college basketball in a so-called meaningful game this season. And finally here, St. John's beat number 15, Creighton, 80-66. to This is coming the game after Creighton took down number one, UConn. Is it just a little bit of a letdown here, or is St. John's trying to claw their way into the NCAA tournament conversation? Hopefully not. I mean, I don't need to watch St. John's play in the NCAA tournament. But uh, once again, they've got to take 68 teams. And this year, more than I can remember in the last decade, there aren't anywhere near 68 teams that deserve to be in the tournament. Not even close. On the other side of the break, we'll get into poll questions. Transitioning back to NBA basketball between the Suns and the Lakers and our ex-poll question at KDUS AM 1060 regarding to Major League Baseball and Cody Bellinger. It's a three-year deal for him, $80 million. Uh, There are opt-outs after each year for him to return to the Chicago Cubs. We'll dive into those poll questions next. It is the Extra Point right here on KDUS AM 1060. As always, follow along with us online at KDUS1060.com and with the KDUS 1060 app. Caddy Ray Adams takes you beyond the 18th hole on Saturday mornings with Great American Golf from 6 to 7 a.m. on KDUS AM 1060. Well, 
12.45 right here on KDOS AM 1060. It is the Extra Point. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro here with you up until 1 o'clock today, as we typically do Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. It's time to dive into today's poll questions, and we'll get things started with the KDOS1060.com poll question. In regards to the Phoenix Suns and the LA Lakers, which stars star-dominated team is more likely to make a playoff run, the Suns or the Lakers? Uh, bottom line is I don't think either of these extremely overrated teams are going to make a playoff run, but the question is uh, cleverly uh, you know, you know, phrased as most likely. Uh, I, I've talked about the, show, uh, the uh, Suns' shortcomings, easy for me to say consecutively there, uh, since I would another S. So Suns' shortcomings since last July. Uh, and I think I've been really pretty accurate about all of that, quite frankly. They don't have a bench. They can't defend. They can't rebound. Uh, they can't finish games. Now, that's one thing I did not anticipate. But uh, And they score a lot of points. Uh, so that's there. But the Lakers are even worse than the Suns. They have far more issues than the Suns. Their lack of attention to detail is something I actually have heard about from people that watch Lakers games on a far more frequent basis than me, even though I've watched five Lakers games this year because they played the Suns five times. Uh, so there's that. They've got massive issues. Uh, and I didn't realize how bad they were uh, until yesterday and watching that game. I think that the Lakers and the Suns certainly have star players. But both these rosters, I think, are very poorly constructed. Uh it's highly unlikely. I don't think either of these teams are going to turn around the postseason, quite frankly. But each team's filled with weaknesses at both ends of the floor. Uh, I think the only way they, I think the only way that either of them win a playoff series is that they play each other in the playoffs, and somebody actually has to win. I'm sure the television networks are hoping that they both have long playoff runs. I would be shocked if they each, if either of them, had a long playoff run this year. Um, I am going to go on the side of the Suns here. If the offense moves a little bit like it did yesterday, that seems to be a little bit less challenging than things being so hard or just isolation one-on-one where Kevin Durant, Devin Booker are having to make uh, some insane shots. And if you're going to get that type of play from Nurkic, uh, that's a a step forward in, in the right direction there. Production continuing to come from Grayson Allen and Royce O'Neal, that would be awesome to see that all together. There happened to be a defensive sequence that took place in that game on Sunday afternoon that stood out. Uh, Grayson Allen, it was a mismatch. He was on Anthony Davis, but he held his own. He held AD up long enough to allow for Booker to come and trap. Uh, Then KD and Bull Bull each rotated like they were supposed to, and it ended up being in a shot clock violation. So if those sorts of defensive efforts can show up at more frequency, then maybe there's an opportunity here. But something just feels off something just feels really hard uh you take little glimmers of hope and then it it doesn't seem to translate into anything the next game or the next game it's kind of starting over if you will uh when it comes to the lakers side of things i mean it's hard to always go against lebron and, and um what he's capable of doing when he's healthy anthony davis when he's healthy but they also feel like something hasn't clicked for them the switch that they experienced last 
last postseason or the run up until the postseason just hasn't been there this year. So to answer the question, I would say the Suns, but I, like you, at this point right now, uh, need to see a little bit more for me to think that this team can go uh, past one series. Yeah, and just uh, to me, it's just two poorly constructed rosters, and they're getting what they deserve. The masses are on the sun side of things at 60% of the vote. Lakers sitting at 40%. This is KDOS1060.com's poll question. Tossing it on over to X at KDOS AM 1060. Should the Cubs be favored to win the NL Central after re-signing Valley Products Cody Bellinger? So it's a three-year, $80 million deal with opt-outs after each year here. If he puts together a season like he did in 2023, then they're obviously sitting in pretty good shape here. They've tried to address some few other needs, and obviously their manager, an upgrade there. Um, but I guess Major League Baseball people are still kind of worried about his contact, uh, his velocity with his contact, because uh, there seemed to be no market here for Cody Bellinger. And in fact, this deal, yes, it's three years, but it kind of seems like he's continuing to have the opportunity to bet on himself again, uh, having opt-outs after every year here. The Brewers, they're definitely in a rebuild. The Reds, you're waiting for them to break out of the division here. The Cardinals, they seem to be a bit of a mystery. And the Pirates, you just hope that they can get to 500. So I think it comes down to the Cubs and the Reds here. So I would say uh, yes at this point. Okay, um, for the record, depending on which sports book you deal with, the Cubs or the Cardinals are actually favored to win the NL Central. After the Bellinger announcement on Saturday night, I think almost every sports book, and I didn't look at very many of these before Saturday night. In fact, I didn't look at any of these before Saturday night. But I'm guessing uh, before Saturday night, uh, all the sports books had the Cardinals after their supposed upgrade off as far as their starting pitching goes in the offseason. They spent a lot of money on some mediocre arms, but good for them, I guess. Good for the mediocre arms and their agents and the players. That's good because they're going to get paid. I don't know if any of these guys are particularly good, but we'll see how that goes. But this is a really bad division. Uh, the two central divisions in Major League Baseball are not good at all. Uh, I think the Cubs can certainly catch the ball. I think the Cardinals have a decent line lineup. Uh, but you know, I don't think anybody in this division is going to win more than like 85, 86 games. Uh, I'll take the Cubs. Greg, Craig Council is at least five wins better than, Car than Cardinals manager Ollie Marmol, who is terrible and you know, should have never been hired to begin with, quite frankly. I, I can't believe he's back. I think the only reason he's back because uh, – the uh, front office it would have to admit that they made a mistake by firing Mike Schilt two years ago, who was an excellent manager and got along with the players. Uh, Marmol's a terrible tactician. Apparently had some problems getting along with the players last year, and they kept him anyway. So I'll take Craig Council and the Cubs over the Cardinals and Marmol. I think that this is the only division in baseball I would take the Cubs to win. The only other one would be the AL Central, but I think the Twins are probably better, even though I'm not sure about that either. The masses are on the yes side of things at 75% of the vote, no trailing at 25%. This is over on X at KDUS AM 1060. We didn't get a chance to get into our Major League Baseball uh, managers on the hot seat to start 2024, so we'll save that for Wednesday's extra point on the other Marble side. Marmol should be on this list. 
there's a very good chance he is. Yeah, he should have never been retained to begin with. So there you go. So go go Cubs and go Craig Council. Uh, so we'll get into that on Wednesday's show. But for now, we have one final segment to get to. And we'll do that on the other side of the break on this Monday, February 26th. Bob Gamp, Kayla Mortolaro here with you in the Extra Point. We'll do what's best for the team, and we'll do what's best for you. The Rich Eisen Show, coming to you weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Here on KDUS AM 1060 and KDUS1060.com. A lightning-fast final segment of this Monday, February 26th edition of Extra Point. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro here with you. And it's that time once again. It is thank you time. Sorry, I'm distracted here just to, for a second. Well, we gotta hurry up though. But they had this this one of those hockey shootout things, you know, with the fans. They like shoot a puck to try to get into the net from like wherever. This gorgeous woman made the shot. So it was, was Cindy Crawford. Distracted. That was Cindy Crawford. Yeah, that was Cindy Crawford. That was she's still with us, right? So, so that was just recently, I guess. Okay, that was I just went. Oh my God. Okay, well, she's a gorgeous woman. All right, sorry. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, especially through this. Sorry. <laughs> uh, special thanks to our, our guest today, Kentucky and SEC Hoops with T.J. Walker from Kentucky Roll Call. Sound of the day courtesy of ABC, WSCR, the Cubs flagship in Chicago, ESPN2, CBS Sports, and also ESPN. Not to be confused with ESPN, too. Uh, special thanks, as always, to Kayla, Corey, and Aaron. And Kayla's going to tell us what's coming up next. And just get me out of here because I, I kind of botched this whole segment up. Sorry. Up next, it is the Doug Gottlieb Show from 1 to 3 p.m., followed by the Rich Eisen Show from 3 to 5. The Sports with Dave Rooster Beerstein from 5 to 6. Monday Night Golf with Ray Adams from 6 to 7. And... James out west from 7 to 8 tonight. Speaking of golf, it was another long shot. It was a rookie on the PGA Tour, Jake Knapp, winning at the Mexico Open. Uh, His story here is that uh, he was kind of running out of money to continue his pursuit of professional golf. So he took nine months and he started to become a... uh, a bouncer at a nightclub and then he was able to uh, earn enough money to return back to playing professional golf and here he is a winner on the PGA Tour. So that'll conclude things for the PGA Tour. Congrats there to Jake Knapp. Everyone have yourselves a fantastic Monday. Bob Kemp in the Sports Zone tomorrow at 10 a.m.